Hello, and welcome to the Project Good podcast. I'm your host, Anne-Marie Hilton. Project Good is a social impact podcast, interviewing experts and advocates about the pressing problems that we face globally and hearing how they suggest we move forward in the future. The Project Good podcast is brought to you by Project Good Work. The goal of this podcast is to inspire people and organizations to develop a mindset that can move others to positive action regarding the complex social issues facing people on the planet. For October, we're focusing on love. Currently, there have been over 6.5 million deaths due to COVID-19, and the loss of life has been higher than we can ever projected. Each of these individuals who are no longer here have parents, spouses, children, friends, and co-workers who have been directly affected by this experience. It has left a hole in many hearts and a blanket of grief in communities. As we begin to prepare for the holiday season and reflect back on what we've all felt, seen, and suffered, it's time we look at love. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing author King Hammer, who is widowed at the age of 44. While caring for her husband and after his death, her friends found unique ways of supporting her and her family. As a way of paying it forward, Kim wrote the book, A Hundred Acts of Love, A Girlfriend's Guide to Loving Your Friend Through Cancer or Loss, and founded 100actsoflove.com, offering inspired ways to support their friend dealing with cancer, loss, or crisis. Her message has reached thousands of women worldwide. She is a mother of three children and lives in the City of Angels. Let's get into the interview. On April 16, 2009, Kim Hammer lost her 44-year-old husband to cancer. They had three children who were 12, 9, and 7 at the time. While her husband had cancer and after he died, Kim was surprised and humbled by the creative and thoughtful ways their friends, co-workers, and sometimes strangers supported them. She started calling these kind actions acts of love. In 2013, she founded 100actsoflove.com a blog where she continues to share interesting and inspired ways to support those in crisis. A lot of people, when they are thinking about the word love, they have this image of Hollywood where you either get swept off your feet or you have this like euphoric feeling. But in our reality, when we're, you know, we're not all in these movie scenes, love does not necessarily look like that. So in your opinion, what is love? I think you you alluded to that already how it doesn't have to be a you know a, a love interest it's the love you feel for your kids it's the adoration you have for someone who is doing something amazing it's the it's the warm feeling you get when you get to hang out with your friends so it's that feeling that makes you feel comfort comforted and um, accepted. Okay. So love, you would say, is like a, a true acceptance um, from yes. uh, from other people and, and probably yourself, because that's, that's what I always uh, um, think about is that uh, a lot of people, uh, if you have self-love, then it's much easier to love other people. Um, so love for you is accepted. Yes. yes, absolutely. I love that. Um, <laughs> that's all you say. I love. Um, so as you uh, were going, one of the things that I thought about, and it could just be me because I, I tend to be a, a quirky individual, but I was thinking as somebody is going through uh, trauma and all these different uh, crises, um, it's hard. 
I think to have people that are, I guess you would say, either trustworthy or you feel not necessarily always needing to have a, a trust, but um, that you would feel close enough or comfortable enough that they can help you with all these um, different kind of, um, you know, different things that uh, you would experience. For example, you wrote in the the book that you had a time where you needed to get the kids to different um, to school or different events. And, you know, you're one person, but then you have three children, so they might have to go to different places at different times. And, um, you know, and then obviously you uh, have to do work and things like that. So where do you find, I guess I was thinking, how do you find such wonderful people? <laughs> that was one of my, <laughs> my biggest things, right? Because I was just like, well, uh, you know, because that's that's one of the biggest questions that came to my mind, because I was like, well, I've been looking around people and I could just become be becoming very cynical, right, um, about uh, things in life. But, um, you know, I'm uh, I'm a little bit apprehensive these days. Like, where do you how did you find these wonderful people? <laughs> well, I think I think we forget when we're in crisis, we are part of a community that we're not even aware of. It wasn't like I had this really strong community. I could name the community and be like, yes, this is my community. It wasn't that at all. It was that people all of a sudden showed up and were very helpful and wanting to help. Um, and I think sometimes we forget that, you know, the person who you smile at in the grocery store really appreciates that you smile at them every day. Your neighbor really appreciates the conversation you have with them when, you know, you stop to talk for a few minutes. And those people are part of your community. Um, so I don't think it's, I don't think it's about, you know, where do you find it? I think it's really about getting to a place where you can accept the love. So I think oftentimes when we talk about love, we talk about wanting love and needing love, but we often don't talk about how bad we are at accepting love, right? So we'll say, I want you to, you know, I want this in this way. Um, and accepting love is really hard. It's really hard because most of us feel like somehow we're not deserving of it. And I know there's probably some listeners like, oh, I feel I'm really deserving of love. But when you really come down to it, you know, what are your actions saying about whether or not you're deserving of love, right? Are you open to it? Do you say, yes, thank you. I'm so appreciative when someone offers to help or you do say, no, no, I'm good. I got it. Um, so I think it's I think it's that I think there's a lot more community and I think that's what made COVID so difficult is when there was a death, you know, it's really important that we love up on those people who are most affected by the death and that we come together and are able to love up on each other. And we couldn't do that during COVID. We didn't have that opportunity to gather and to just be with people who who were mourning the loss of somebody. And um, so that cut our communities off from us. So I think, I mean, basically it's a long way of saying that I think we're part of communities we don't, we're not even aware of, but when tragedy happens, those people come forward and we're like, oh, we're part of these big communities we're not even aware of. Yes, I like the fact that you're bringing up um, community. I think that is the um, kind of the, the theme or the, uh, the after effects I guess that we're learning from the pandemic or even during the pandemic um, is that I think that we forgot because, uh, you know, pre-pandemic life, we were all running around like, you know, chickens with our heads cut off. 
And uh, we didn't have this time to stop and and think and appreciate, um, you know, seeing other people <laughs> even. Yeah. Yes. Um, and how important people are in our daily interactions and daily lives. And, you know, um, uh, I think you kind of already answered this a little bit. But what do you think was uh, holding people back before this like uh, pandemic um, uh, crisis that happened um, in supporting each other in society? Because right now, I think, uh, you know, that's kind of the the fight out there is that everybody wants support for uh, either their community or I'll say their issue. So I think there's two things. I mean, one, I want to talk about like what you're, I think what you were referring to with support about their community or their issue, are you referring to sort of like, I'm, I'm representing a cause and I want everyone to give that cause. Is that what you were talking about, Anne? Um, yes, it's, it's sort of like that. It's, um, uh, yes. So, uh, for example, I'll give you an example and I think it will clarify. So right now, um, you know, there's, uh, the issue of, uh, uh, women's rights, right? Uh, women's mm-hmm. rights in a, a lot of um, uh, different ways, right? So because of the pandemic, uh, one of the the fallouts was the lack of like uh, childcare or of school. Um, you know, uh, a lot of parents either had to do homeschool or even if you have even had university kids, um, they couldn't mm-hmm. go to the university like uh, you had planned. Um, and then there's, uh, you know, the other issue is women is... Um, uh, and of course, I'm not getting in this because it's a, a political um, issue of, um, you know, uh, the uh, abortion rights. And so everybody wants uh, right now to have people see, um, you know, uh, why they need uh, support. Um, just the simple things, I guess we could even look at it as, um, you know, a lot of people are experiencing mental health issues after this uh, event. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I think one of the the fallouts is before that, or even right now, people are kind of like, what what do we do? What do we do? Um, And so what was holding us back, I guess, previously before that we didn't, um, you know, uh, work to support these type of um, things that were going on? And I know they were different. I just gave examples that were, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, cause and effect from pandemic. But um, yeah, there, there were these issues. A lot of issues were already there. So I think there's a difference. What, what I talk about is really about working on the micro level, right? There's the macro level, which is some of the causes that you've talked about. And then there's the micro level, which is really our sphere of influence. How can we specifically help and support somebody in crisis um, in a way that makes them feel loved and cared for, but also, you know, give, makes us feel good, like we're part of a community. When I think about what you were talking about, just as an example of um, women's rights and childcare, right? Lack of childcare. I think that, you know, sometimes we get so lost in the big stuff that we forget about how powerful we are in the small stuff and the micro. So maybe this is a really important issue to you. And so maybe you're going to um, find, maybe you've got a neighbor or a friend who needs support with childcare and you're going to go out and try to find that support or you're, you need support too. So you're going to put together sort of this co-op, this, this co-op with all these parents who are going to kind of pay for and swap out childcare. But I think it's really important. I think one of the biggest issues that we have is to really focus on what we can do 
personally on that micro level, because when you look at the macro level, it feels like I'm like this sand, this little piece of sand on the beach. When I think about what I can do to support my friend who's dealing with loss or cancer or anything else or lack of child, child, lack of child care, I could be a big boulder in helping to stem the water flow. Does that make sense? It does. I think, you know, and I think um, uh, kind of what you're saying is that people don't realize, I guess, uh, I think they think that I have to solve the big issue, um, but, you know, they can help by solving the immediate issue. Like you could offer, like I could watch your child for an hour. You may not solve the crisis of childcare, <laughs> but you can, exactly. you know, but you can then, uh, you know, offer to do your part or as you know, um, as that saying of uh, uh, Desmond Tutu says, do your, do your, uh, you know, two little uh, sense of what you can do in your, you know, um, your community, and then all those little pieces put together will will change the world. Um, so yeah, so um, yeah, I, I like that, um, and it goes back to your book of you know things that are actually practical that you can make a difference because I think it's overwhelming at least, um, and you know, you also personally went through it. If you just look at the situation um, and you look at it a, as a whole, it's like, how do you even go through it, right? But then, exactly. When, but then, when you start breaking it down into pieces, then it, you know, becomes manageable. Exactly, and I think that's the, that was the reason I wrote the book is because before my husband had cancer, I thought that that I, you know, I would, I would have loved to offer to, well, not really make a meal, but to bring a meal. Um, but I felt like I need to bring a meal every day for the next six weeks. And the reality is when your friend is going through crisis, doing one small thing, I mean, is, is so powerful. And so I want people to know that, you know, you don't have to provide meals for the next three months, every Monday, you can literally go to the grocery store and call up your friend or coworker, whoever it is and say, I'm going to the grocery store. I want you to look in your cabinet and tell me what five things are you almost out of, right? Get those five things, drop them off at the door. And that's so hugely helpful. Um, I think sometimes we get confused with wanting to, we feel so bad about this person and what they're going through. We feel awful. It hurts, right? Because we love them. It hurts our heart. And I think that's another definition of when they hurt, you hurt. And that's, that's another definition of love. Um, so it hurts us to see them going through it. And we know we can't change anything. We know we can't like take the chemo away or the radiation or the treatment or the fear or anything. And so because we can't do those big macro things, we tend to feel like we're really powerless. And I'm telling you right now, I am here, not because I'm super strong and I managed to get through my husband's death. I am here because of the hundreds of little things that people did for us. So I think I think it's the, you know, it's understanding our own personal power and what it means. And it doesn't always feel like, you know, for the person who filled my car with gas, it doesn't feel like they did a great thing. And, they, you know, it took them 
30 minutes at the most, but it was such a huge load off of me because I was, I, first of all, when it happened, I forgot that I needed gas in the car. Second of all, when you're in crisis, doing all the normal things that you would normally do, um, takes on a, takes a huge gargantuan effort because your brain is focused on this crisis. So any small thing that someone can do for you is really helpful. And I think that's what I really want people to feel and to know is how much they matter and how much those small things, even if that person never thanks you for that small thing, even if they don't remember that you've done that small thing, which happened to me, um, you, that small thing really does help. So I think that's, I really, that's the piece. I mean, that's sort of what the book is about, kind of that quick answer. And that's the piece that I really want people to know about and to feel. Yeah. And, you know, and it's perfect. I was just, you know, I was, I was thinking just because of the title of your book, it's about, um, you know, as you were explaining your definition of love, of acceptance, um, I think a lot of people don't also realize that acceptance also comes with, you know, um action as well right um so hence the yes. the name of your book uh you know love um acts of love right um and so uh i think a lot of people they they just think of love as a feeling um but as we know feeling yes feeling... that's a really good point love is also an act well I, I, clearly it's an act because that's what it felt like someone was someone would be like here's a lasagna we love you we're picking up the kids and taking them to the movies. We love you. Like it just felt like it was a, a, an act. It really was an act of love. Yes. And so um, I think that's, uh, you know, one of the important points as you were, you were talking that I was thinking about is that, uh, you know, people have to think about love differently, um, that it isn't just, uh, you know, this like uh, Hollywood version <laughs> or, you know, right. everything is, uh, uh, you know, peachy creamy, as I say. Um, right. that, uh, you know, that you taking that load off, as you mentioned, um, and no matter how small makes a, a world of dis difference, um, to a person. And absolutely. And the other thing then, uh, that brings me up because I was, uh, one of the things that I kept noticing in your, your book is that you wanted to remind people you were like, if nothing else <laughs> that people learn from the book. I believe you said that what's the number one yes. thing not to say to someone when they're in a crisis. <laughs> yes, I think this is important. Exactly. I think this is so, so, so important, not only because of the, the, you know, that you mentioned in the book, but just because I believe it is something that needs to be said because there are so many crises going on here in the world. Um, so um, and people don't know, you know, what to say. So this is important. So could you uh, tell us what the number one thing people should not say to someone during a crisis? Yes, yes, yeah. I will. And here it is. Here's the thing, uh, listeners, you said it and it's okay. I just want people to know that. I don't want them to walk away feeling guilty about this. So the number one thing never to say to anybody in crisis is if you need anything, let me know or any version of that. And although it sounds really helpful and although you mean anything in the moment, it's it's too big an offer and here's why the first thing is what is anything and i give the example of when my husband was first diagnosed i had a i had a four-year-old and you know four-year-olds get sick 
and they have the snot and stuff running out of their faces. So does anything mean that you're going to take your brand new, just detailed car and go to pick up my snot nose, maybe vomiting toddler? <laughs> or did you mean that you're happy to go out and run and get a gallon of milk, right? For my friend whose mother was dying, did anything mean that you were willing to read to a person who was dying, like you knew was dying? Are you comfortable with that? Or did you mean that you'd be happy to pick up the mail from the post office, right? <laughs> so anything is too big a word to wrap their heads around, just too big. The second reason it's not helpful is because when you say that to the person, you are then asking them to break down their day into bite-sized chunks. And I often use this example. What did you have for breakfast two, two, two mornings ago? And a lot of times, if you don't have the same breakfast all the time, you don't remember what you had for breakfast. In the same way that a person in crisis or even a regular person not in crisis has a hard time remembering, like, like they have to break down their day. Okay, so how did I get to work today? Well, I got up, I brushed my teeth, I took a shower, I got dressed, I went through five different outfits because I couldn't figure out what I was going to wear or I knew exactly what I was going to wear. I ate breakfast. All oh, right, but then I was out of milk. So that took time. So I had to run to the grocery store. I went and got milk. I came back. Oh, I answered a few emails. So you're asking them to break down their day into a bite-sized chunk that will make sense. And it's an impossible ask. I mean, it's, it's not impossible. It's a very difficult ask. And it's a doubly difficult ask when you're asking someone who's in crisis. Um, the third reason, let's just say that the person does figure out something that they need help with. Now you are asking someone who is feeling very vulnerable in a society where asking for help is often, it's, it's no longer shamed upon, but it's still not a great thing to do to ask you to do something that you may not even want to do because you said anything, but they have no idea if the thing that they have in mind is, is under that anything because both you and them know that it wasn't, you didn't mean anything. You had a, you, you didn't, although you didn't have specific something in your head, you had some general ideas of what anything is. So those are the three reasons it's not helpful. What I often tell people to do is to be specific. When you offer support, be really specific about what the support you're going to offer is and how often. I um, dedicated my book to a gentleman named Kinney, who I live in Los Angeles, and he works, he has a, a, a booth at the Venice Farmer's Market. And when I told Kinney that my husband had cancer, he said to me, if you need anything heavy moved, let me know. And I thought that was a really weird offer, to be honest, because everyone kept saying, if you need anything, let me know. If you need anything, let me know. But something about Kinney's offer stayed with me because it was specific. And I would stop by every other week or maybe every three weeks and he'd say, don't forget, if you need anything heavy moved, I've got your back. Well, we had a grand piano. And after my husband died, this is four years after Kinney made the offer. After my husband died, I just went through a phase I needed to rearrange the living room. And who do you think I called to help me move not only the piano, but the big furniture? I called Kinney because his offer, because he offered more than once and because it was so specific, I remembered it. And I think that's the other thing is that your person who's going through this crisis, they may look like they have 52 deck, 50, 52 cards in the deck. They do not. <laughs> They're minus some cards. And so when you make this offer and you think, well, why didn't they call me? It's because they probably don't remember. 
<laughs> so, so, so just kind of be, you know, be a little open-minded and offer more than once. And if they don't take you up on the offer, you know, you can offer something different and specific, or you can say to them, Hey, I know I keep offering to bring you a meal. It seems like you don't need a meal. Would you like me to stop by the grocery store and pick up five things that you're almost out of? Right. So you, you can kind of do a little different uh, thing that you want to offer, but the thing is, don't say that phrase anymore. And there's only one caveat, unless it is your bestest friend who you read each other mind type of thing. You know, if you <laughs> said to her, you know, if you need anything, let me know. She's going to literally hand you a list of things to do. Um, but in most cases, in our casual and even sometimes our close relationships, saying that phrase is just not helpful. And it leads to a person feeling actually more isolated rather than less isolated and less supported as well. Yes. Um, yeah, I thought that was, uh, you know, that, that phrase, of course, uh, stuck with me. And I, I remembered, because I was like, okay, now I know. <laughs> and also, <Right. laughs> and also, you know, it, when you, when you mentioned that in the book, it kind of made me feel relieved. <laughs> you know, right. you know, you know, that's what I was thinking, because, you know, um, as I, as I'm getting older, people are experiencing, obviously, different, different uh, crises in their lives that are, uh, you know, sometimes more heartbreaking or, or traumatic. Um, and so, you know, you, you want to help, but then you don't want to necessarily always extend yourself out to the point that you start feeling <laughs> like uh, uh, breaking. So um, it gave me the, the relief feeling because then, you know, you, you had a dedicated uh, boundary. Um, yes. And I think that's uh, important um, to, you know, for people to have different types of boundaries when it comes to these things, because, um, uh, you know, no, it, it of course depends how, you know, close you are with the person, but not necessarily. Some people are, you know, um, more emotional can cry at the drop of a hat. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it helps you as the person that is offering um, assistance or in this case, we'll say extending an act of love not to get um, so deeply entrenched that then you become uh, paralyzed yourself. Exactly. I think that's the other idea. There's a, there's another um, act of love in my book where I talk about why do you want to help? And I think it's really important that everyone kind of check in with themselves because some people want to help because they feel this great amount of love and they want to like pay this person back for their friendship or for their kindness. Other people want to help because they, because it's going to feel really good for them. They feel like, you know, they need to, um, it's just going to feel really good for me if I help and I need to do that. And that sometimes can borderline on martyrdom. And if you're helping, if you're helping with, with an ulterior motive to either one, because it's going to feel good to you, which is actually an okay reason. But if you're helping because you think that you're going to get a ribbon because you're the most helpful person in the world, that's where people often overextend themselves. And so they go into this helping all the time and draining themselves and not taking care of themselves. And then usually what happens, because we're sometimes not even aware of that, we get angry. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden we're angry at the person who needs the help. And we're not even sure really why we're angry at them, but we were sort of like, you know, they're asking for too much when they haven't asked for anything, but you've taken it upon yourself to be that, that person. So it's really important that there's a balance 
Um, because one of the things that we have to remember, you know, when you, you can put yourself in their shoes, it's really hard to be sick. It's really hard to have COVID. It's really hard to deal with loss, right? It feels so deeply isolating. And when we're in that space, we are the most vulnerable, right? We are so, we're bereft, we're, we're lost, we're, we're terrified out of our minds. And the last thing you want to do is to make them feel like they're a burden. You know, we live in the United States of America and we are so darn proud of how we really believe that we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, right? And so we hold these, we have these, we hold these people to iconic levels, you know, Oprah or Gates or, um, um, Tiger Woods, or um, I'm trying to think of some other sports, be Kobe Bryant, we hold them up to these incredible standards like they did it themselves. There is not a single person who, who has made it, doesn't matter who it is, you know, Joe Rogan, <laughs> they did not do it themselves. They got help, they sought support, they got feedback, they didn't like some of the feedback that they got, but they did it anyway. None of them did it themselves. And so we have to sort of remember that, that because what happens is when, we, when we're dealing with an illness, we think, oh, I can manage this myself. And if, if these great people couldn't manage it themselves, why do you think that you can manage it yourself? So I think it's important that we remember that this is where we're coming from. We often think that asking for help is shameful. Um, we don't want handouts. Um, we feel like we should, we pass judgment on our ability or lack of ability to manage a difficult situation by ourselves. And so all those things can get in the way of, of, of seeking out and accepting the support. And the last thing you want to do is to make them feel guilty for, for being vulnerable and for accepting the help that you've offered. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I started uh, picturing uh, kind of, um, you know, they do these movies of, <laughs> of people <laughs> that get mad at these and become, you know, a little bit, uh, uh, you know, depressed or, or, or in like horror movies, <laughs> psychotic after yes. after they help someone. Um, so, yes. yes, but, you know, it's it, it does happen to, you know, a certain set of people that, you know, they start to be like, oh, this person is ungrateful for everything. And, and then you're like, but I didn't even ask you to do it. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Exactly. If you're thinking that the person is ungrateful, it's really not on them. It's on you. You mm -hmm. need to look at what your motives were in giving in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and this leads me to a perfect uh, uh, segue into how, um, what are some healthy ways to deal with the loss of a loved one? I think that is um, something that a lot of people um, have trouble with. Um, uh, and especially if we're looking at like now because of uh, crisis mode, we're looking at millions and millions of people dead um, or that. And a lot of um, as you know, everybody is uh, it's a ripple effect um, that, mm -hmm. you know, it's this one person, but, you know, it affects 100 people. And so um, yes. uh, so everyone, I think, um, has uh, experienced some level of grief, even if they, uh, you know, maybe didn't personally know someone they know, uh, you know, of someone like I even know someone um, that, uh, you know, unfortunately uh, passed uh, due to uh, the pandemic. So I think almost everybody um, knows either a friend of a friend or something that, um, you know, experienced a loss. Um, so how, how do we deal with um, this type of loss in healthy ways? 
I think that's a great question, and I'm really glad you asked. Um, so I'm going to talk about it from two different sides. I mean, first, from the person who, the grieving person side, um, I don't know that there's any way to quote unquote deal with it. There's only a way to walk through it. And in the beginning, the pain, depending, of course, on your relationship with the person, the pain can be so excruciating that it feels like you are never going to be over it. Um, and you know, I always think about, um, I think the designer is Alexander McQueen and his mother died and he had a really close relationship with her. And then a month later he killed himself. And that, that story always breaks my heart because, I mean, I think there were obviously other extenuating circumstances, but the fact that he felt he couldn't get past, he wouldn't be able to ever get through the grief of the loss of someone he was so beloved to him um, is, is, is actually really not true. It's a lie that we tell ourselves. Um, it's intense. The beginning of the grieving process is so, so, so intense. So here are a couple things that I did that I found very helpful to myself. The first one was I got into a support group. And for, um, I've had people say, but why would I want to go to a group with other people who are grieving? Like that's just going to compound my sadness. If the group is done well, they don't start till three or four months after you've your major loss, because they understand that that's exactly the issue in the beginning. But there's something very magical about go, being in a support group with other people who are also grieving the loss of someone that they love. And that magic is in, is in seeing firsthand that you're not alone. Grieving is extremely isolating. And when you're grieving someone who's of great loss to you, and then you walk out into the world, and it seems like nobody has changed anything, and you're like, my world is turned upside down. And you know, your friend calls you and tells you about the fact that she went to Disneyland with her kids and how much fun it was, you feel like it's just not right. So I think that support group has been very help was very helpful to me in that I was able to see other people grieving the same way that I was grieving. I think the second thing, it's just time. And um, I, you know, I, there's a, my husband, my, my daughter, my, my only daughter, I have three children, two boys and one girl. When my daughter was born, she would scream every night at 825, right? When she was born <laughs> for like, swear to God, it felt like for years, but if, <laughs> it was definitely for the first nine months of her life. And my husband would, would, uh -huh. would take her, he'd put her in this baby Bjorn. We were living in Las Vegas in the winter at the time. He'd put his big green LL Bean overcoat on over him, the one with the, one with the wood toggles. Mm -hmm. And he would take her for a walk and he would walk with her until she stopped crying. And sometimes he'd be back in five minutes and sometimes it would be an hour. <laughs> and I said to him, like, how do you outlast that? Like, how do you not want to put her on the side of the road and just walk away? <laughs> and, and he said, and, and he said to me, you just need to know you can outlast it. And there's, so there's a faith. And I, you know, I remember him saying that. And so when he died, I remember thinking, I just need to remember I can outlast this. And so really having the faith that no matter how bad it gets, no matter how painful it feels, I can outlast it. Um, and so that faith was really, really important. And it wasn't a faith in God, really. It was a faith in, maybe it was a faith in God, depending on who you think God is, right? If God is an internal being in yourself, then it's definitely having the faith in God. So it's just really, it was really tapping into, I can outlast this. Um, 
And then I surrounded myself with people who were further down the journey from me. So that was really helpful to see someone when I was at six months, it was really helpful to see someone at nine months. When I was at a year, it was really helpful to see someone and talk to someone who's at three years because they gave me the, the, they gave me the hope of like, oh, wow, they're functioning human beings. And then they also, a lot of them told me the truth. Like, hey, you know, the other day I crumbled, crumbled on the floor, crying 40 minutes, like he just died yesterday. Um, and then I popped back up and went and picked up the kids and everything was fine. So I think it's having, knowing, knowing people who are further along than you, who are, helps that journey. So that would be my sort of advice. Um, my last piece of advice is don't expect anyone to feel the loss as great and as deeply as you, because that's what I mean by it can be very isolating. For those who are supporting someone who's dealing with loss, um, my three pieces of advice are, are a little bit different, but sort of similar. I think the first thing is you need to feel the pain. You know, their loss, um, first of all, the, if you know them, the person that they know who died, you're mourning them too. So grieve. Um, I have uh, one of the things I show when I do um, talks is the grieving circle. And, you know, you want to grieve out. You don't ever want to grieve. You don't ever want to. And I want to be very clear with this. It is okay for you to call the person who has the who has the more immediate loss and say, I was just thinking about him the other day and it made me laugh and cry. And I just want to know I'm so sorry. Like, I just want you to know I'm so sorry. That's okay. What you don't want to do is grieve into her and go, oh, my God, I can't believe your brother died. I feel so so awful. Like you don't, that's, that's not okay. Because then you're making the person who is, who has the immediate um, loss comfort you. So don't do that. So I always say, you know, grieve, grieve and try to point it outside. If you need someone, you need someone to hold you and to tell you how sorry it is that they've lost, that you've lost this person. Like that's okay. So feel your feelings. Um, the second thing I always say is to, you know, be, be curious uh, with compassion towards the person who is really grieving. So we all have these ideas. We don't often recognize them, but we have ideas of how we think we behave if we grieve. And the bottom line is you don't know until you're there. Like, you know, some people, oh, I would cry all the time. You don't know that. I would want this around me. You don't know that. So you have to take away the judgment that you have about what proper grieving looks like. And this is so important because I've heard people, you know, people told me I should get rid of my husband's clothes. People told me I should stop talking to my kids about my husband so much. People told me I should talk some more. People told, you know, people told me I should stop wearing my wedding ring. Nobody knows what it feels like to grieve until you are in that spot. I chose to wear my wedding ring for a year and a half after he died because it was my way of being connected with him, right? Mm -hmm. but, but people told me at six months I should take it off. <laughs> Well-meaning, loving people who cared about me. So instead of having judgment about what this person should be doing, I often say be curious with compassion, right? So that means, that means offering, hey, when you are ready, to go through the closet and start to get rid of those things. I am happy to help. It also means, tell me, like, when do you think you're gonna be ready to get rid of the clothes? And it and it mean you mean it with compassion, right? You're not kind of like judgment. When do you think you're gonna be ready? It's this compassion. And then sit back and listen. Because that's the biggest gift you can give to anybody going through whatever it is in their lives. It's listening, it's hearing, it's understanding. 
And then the third thing is then you can go into joint problem solving if you need to. So that means that, you know, you're, you're kind of, you know, you've offered a couple times to be there to help clean out the closet. And then, and then, you know, you've listened compassionately. So you sort of know when not to talk about it anymore. And then you come to it and say, Hey, I bought some bins today. So we could, so we can, so you can move the clothes from the closet, but not get rid of them, right? You can just put them back in the closet, put them up in the attic or down the basement, whatever it is. Um, so that's where that, that's where that piece comes from. So those are the kind of three pieces of advice I have. And it's to put it in, in smaller terms, what I really mean is just show up, you know, show up as yourself, because that's the best gift that you can give to that person. If you have a great joking relationship with that person and they just lost someone, laughing with them and joking about the loss is so incredibly appropriate, it's not even funny. <laughs> like, it's appropriate. It's okay to do. It's not bad. We have these rules about you shouldn't laugh. Well, you know what? If someone talks about, you know, you know, it's like a friend of mine once said, <laughs> she came to me and said, it was a year after my husband died and it wasn't a friend, it was an acquaintance. And she said, I'm so sorry. I feel really bad. I didn't do anything to help you. I feel so bad, you know? And I looked at her and I joked, I said, it's okay. He's going to be dead for a while. There's still time to help. <laughs> and, and she paused for a second and then she burst out laughing, right? <laughs> like comments like that are, are okay. They're okay. So I think the biggest thing is to be yourself. And, and if you don't know what that is, that's okay. You can show up and say, I don't even know what that, what the be myself is, but I just know I want to show up for you in some meaningful way. So can I scrub your kitchen floor? And you're probably going to go, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> you can't scrub my kitchen right, floor, yeah. but you know yeah. what? I really need some dishwasher detergent to run the dishwasher. Okay. I'm on it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so it's being gentle and kind with yourself as you show up. But the, I think again, the key thing is to feel your feelings. Cause if you don't, they eke out of you, the judgment you have around what's supposed to be done with loss ekes out of you. And that makes for really awkward conversation. And it could also, it could also cause the loss of a friendship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So not like, you know, I was, uh, you know, just answered, uh, what I was going to ask is like, why is grieving important? Because I think a lot of people try to avoid grieving. Um, because, yeah. um, I think they try to avoid grieving uh, for a number of reasons, you know, uh, nobody likes to feel pain, you know, that, um, mm -hmm. and then of, of course, uh, we, I think it's mostly, uh, an, well, I don't know all societies, but it's an American thing. Of course, um, we don't want to be seen as weak. Um, yes. and, um, you know, so I, I like, um, how you have like, you know, broken down the. The points of grieving and then also i love the fact that you have um you know you have put a lightheartedness towards it and i think that's something <laughs> that is that people never ever really think of that like you know you're one of the few people that i ever um you know have heard of having a lightheartedness to it mostly the only people i ever hear is like comedians <laughs> will say you know right. add something add something <laughs> lighthearted to it um <laughs> But uh, because, you know, most people think, you know, have to be, you know, uh, there's so many, um, I guess you would say unwritten or what people perceive as like uh, cultural rules, even though they they don't really know because they haven't experienced it, as you were saying, right. uh, about what grief should look like. Like, you know, people think they have to be, uh, you know, dressed in black and, you know, <laughs> curled up in a corner or something to show that they're really right. grieving. Um, and uh 
I I love the point that you bring up that, you know, grieving looks different for everyone, but it doesn't mean that you're not experiencing the same amount of pain. Exactly. I think that's so important. Look, I'm a cheery person, kind of am, and it's always been my disposition. Um, and so sometimes I would go out with three months after my husband died and I'd be laughing and people would be like, you're sure she's a widow? Like, yeah, because I just cried. I cried in the car all the way over here, you know? So so just, yeah, just, just have patience and love. And again, you just don't know until you're in that position. So from a personal standpoint, uh, which kind of act do you remember the most uh, when you were going through your difficult time? I love telling this story, and it's a story about my neighbor, Nate. And uh, Nate and my husband were just beginning a friendship, and uh, Nate loved my kids. He would, he would invite us over for barbecues, and we'd swim in his pool, and we lived a half a block away from Nate. And one day after my husband died, Nate came up, and he said, he knocked on the door, and he said, when was the last time the oil was changed in your car? And I couldn't tell him. I couldn't tell him we had an older car. It was back in 2009, but you know, had little lights that would switch over. If it was you know, mm -hmm. green, it was good. Yellow and red would be like, change your oil now. <laughs> uh -huh. um, um, I couldn't even tell him where it was in the lighting system. And he said, okay, I'll tell you what, I will do it for you tomorrow. Why don't you just leave the keys in the mailbox, text me, I'll come grab the car and take care of it. And I said, great. So first of all, the offer is great because he's, he's asking me to leave the keys in the mailbox. So sometimes when it's very hard, I want people to remember that it's very hard to accept help. Just keep that in mind. It's very hard to accept help. Um, and so he made it really easy for me to accept help because it wasn't like I had, I, there's, there was shame in the fact that I couldn't even manage to get to the, the oil changing place to get my oil changed in my car. You know, there was shame in the fact that I couldn't remember that I needed to have the oil changed in the fact. So he made it really easy for me to not feel any shame. Um, he came and got the car, he dropped it off and put the keys back and said, it's done. And a little later that day, I went out to take the kids someplace and I walked out to the car and I start to cry and I get in the car and I start to sob because he had not only had the oil changed in the car, but he had had it washed inside and out. And keep in mind, I had three kids who were, you know, three children is all I need to say, minivan, three kids, <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. um, not clean, right? Those, those, <laughs> those words, do not, the not clean does not belong in that sentence. Um, so he had had it washed inside out, he had had the oil changed, and he had filled it with gas. And the reason that that is such as the story that I always remember is because he did something that took a burden away from me that I wasn't even aware that I had a burden of. So that's the thing is when you're in crisis, like I said earlier, doing the normal things is really hard and stressful. And with that small little forethought of the changing the oil and then filling it with gas and cleaning it, he relieved this burden that I was like, all right, I got to get the car cleaned. Ugh, I got to get the, I got to fill it with gas. I got to fill it with gas before, before I have to drive this kid to this place and this person, this, you know, so it was a heavy load on me and he removed it from me with one simple thing. Um, yeah, I mean, that to me is the most, to me, that's the most, I, actually, I'm going to say this, there's one other. 
So currently I um, consult with businesses and helping them support and navigate and be and work with employees who are dealing with cancer or loss. And the other big thing was when my husband was first diagnosed, we were sitting, I remember we were sitting in the exam room with the doctor who was going over the type of treatment. And I stopped listening when the doctor said, it's going to be, you know, six to eight months before you're going to have to, you're going to have to stop working. It's going to be six to eight months. And I went to a massive panic because we didn't have savings that was going to last us for six to eight months. And I just couldn't figure out like, how are we going to make this work? I mean, he needs the treatment. We're not going to not do the treatment, but how are we going to afford this? How, you know, how are we going to live? How are we going to survive with our three kids while he gets treatment? And a couple days later, I walked in on a conversation my husband was having, and he didn't look good. He looked kind of shocked, and I was really scared. Um, and he had just gotten off the phone with his boss, and his boss had just told him that they were going to cover his salary for the time that he was sick. And so now, all of a sudden, we didn't have a financial burden to deal with. Wow. Huge, huge. I mean, yeah, wow is the only word. Right. And so those two things together, like one is an example of what an organization can do to support an employee who's dealing with cancer. And another is an example of what an individual can do um, to support an employee with cancer. So micro and macro, I mean, if you guess, if you want to look at it that way. Um, so those are the two things that I remember the most. And they still to this day remain, you know, really powerful examples of one person taking the initiative to do one simple thing that has had a you know big ramifications. Wow. I have to say, you know, I'm just talking to you and listening to your your story and of course the different about going through a crisis like this. Um I can I can feel it and and just uh, talking to you that one of the the I guess side effects we'll say or um, or uh, you know, benefits of all of this. If we say that it's a benefit, mm -hmm. is that your your heart? I can feel uh, grew to a level. I think and and affects you in a, in a different way that you never expected. Um, yes. And and I and I can feel it as I talk to you. Um, that um, you know, it's not. Uh, I think it's different than obviously what you thought how um, things would turn out, like from the initial time that this happened, right? Right. Um, you know, uh, I can feel that, you know, uh, just like, I'll just say it's the typical thought that everybody thinks that, you know, you're going to shrink away, <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> like, you're just going to be yes. like, you know, I think that's the initial, initial thought. But you, from this experience and because of the, um, the community, and because of the way that people uh, decided to team together and uh, realize that um, when one person is in crisis, it affects all of us, um, that it then changed you to be a person that you never imagined. Uh, that's how I feel talking to you. You just put it so well. I mean, you know, never did I think after a month after my husband died that I would have a business supporting employees and manager teams dealing with cancer in the workplace. That was just, that was just why my husband's dead. You know, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. It's going to affect me for the rest of my life in a negative way. And it did, but what I didn't anticipate 
is the positive effect it would have on my life. Um, I do want to do one caveat because often people say to me, hey, you made lemonade out of lemons. I hate that saying. I hate that saying because it implies that it's all good. <laughs> and and I want to tell you a story. Two months ago, I was, um, yeah, about two months ago. So when my husband used to hear fire trucks and ambulances go by, I would think when I used to hear them go by, I would think, oh no, someone's hurt. And he would think, go get them, go get them guys. They're going to rescue. And I don't remember when we had that conversation. It was somewhere between, he had cancer twice. So it was somewhere in between the, the bouts. And so, you know, several years after he's died, I hear a fire engine go by and, and all of a sudden I remember what he said and I think, go get him guys. And I just, it's sort of what I do now. Whenever an ambulance goes by or police or fire truck, I think, go get him, go help who, who needed the, go help who needs the help right now. So a fire, I live in Los Angeles, got a lot of fire trucks <laughs> that go by. <laughs> One day I hear the fire truck go by. I say, go get him. And I start sobbing because I, because it makes me just connect with him in that one moment. My husband has been dead for 13 years. So the loss doesn't end. It just changes the way it affects your life. And, um, and I sobbed five minutes. I had to pull over because I didn't think it was a good idea that I'd be driving and sobbing. And I pulled over and I cried and I swore at him for dying. And I swore at him that I still missed him. And I swore at him that he would not recognize his children right now. And I finished crying. I dried my eyes. I continued going where I was going. And it was just like nothing happened. Um, so there is a sad side of grief and loss. You know, I expect that I will miss him for the rest of my life. I don't know. Um, and there is, and then there is a beautiful side. I mean, you know, my children's hearts are soft and wonderful and kind, and they're more open to people than the average child their age because of the, the loss that they've experienced. Um, but that's not making lemonade out of lemons. That's not making something sour and turning it into something sweet. It's taking lemons and sort of changing the way you look at them um, and changing the way that they taste to you and making all different kinds of food from them, but still recognizing that all those foods start and will always have a sour taste to them. I don't know if that metaphor works. It's the first time I've used it. We'll have to see. No, I, I, like, <laughs> I, I like it. I get it. I, I love metaphors. So, um, yeah, I, I, looking at... Um how you perceive something because lemons are sour, sour tasting and looking at it from a, a whole different light. Um, I, I love it. Um, and so the last question I have for you, and you kind of um, have already answered it a little bit, but what's the most significant thing you've learned about love? Oh, that it's always there. It's always there even in moments when i don't feel loved the love is always there love that <laughs> i think <laughs> <laughs> um uh that is i think the the thing that everyone needs to hear that the love is always <laughs> there uh, yeah it's always there yeah 
Oh, that was beautiful. <laughs> I, I, no, it, it made, you know, it gave me a little, it gave me a little bit of chills because, um, you know, uh, I've been, uh, researching in, uh, a little bit when I was preparing for this, uh, interview and, um, I went a little bit deep because as, as I, um, start to formulate and think about questions. So I was looking at, um, people's like, um, uh, near death experiences, you know, that they have mm. the, the out of body experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is like the, the number one thing that people learn when they come back from that experience is that oh, the, interesting. is that the love is always there. Yeah. 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 It, it, and it, I, I'm, I'm laugh. I was laughing only because I hadn't really thought about it, but that's exactly, that's exactly what it is. It's always there. And it's about our perception. Right. So that kind of goes back to the beginning of the question of you said, where did all these people come from? Mm -hmm. And and the love and support is always there. It's just about our perception. So, wow, that was really good. Thank you for that question. That was a really good question. I loved your answer. Yeah, I still have chills. <laughs> yeah, like inside, I'm like, ooh, <laughs> it, it really did hit me. It hit me. It hit me in so many ways, like the way you answered it. And because of my research, I was like, that's like exactly what they say on the other side. <laughs> right, 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 right. So, so I guess I was like, you know, when that happens, it's like serendipity. I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, So that's really wild. Yes. Um, so yes, uh, so thank you so much um, for your uh, time and insight. Um, so oh. <laughs> it was beautiful. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your project and and um, thank you for those really good questions. They were good ones and they made me think and I really appreciate that. <laughs> no problem. Um, to learn more about Kim Hammer and how to assist those in crisis, go to 100actsoflove.com. If you have a passion for an unserved community, a social justice problem, or want to change minds, contact Project Good Work at projectgood.work to start your project of change today. We'd like to send our deepest gratitude to our ongoing show supporter, Blair Chapman. Subscribe to our mailing list at projectgood.work slash subscribe to get our episodes and blog articles sent to you each month. Plus, get a 10% discount on any project you start on projectgood.work. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to Project Good, where we're focused on what matters.